0: This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of elbow stiffness and contractures from the shoulder and elbow section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Elbow stiffness and contractures of the elbow result in loss of motion and difficulty performing activities of daily living and may occur as a result of trauma, osteoarthritis, elbow surgery, or a congenital condition. Diagnosis is made clinically with assessment of active and passive elbow range of motion with a comparison to the contralateral side. Treatment is a trial of aggressive physical therapy to achieve functional range of motion. Operative management is indicated in the event of bony blocked emotion, congenital disease, and lack of improvement with physical therapy. Now let's get into the episode. Starting with etiology, with respect to pathophysiology, causes of elbow stiffness and contractures include osteoarthritis, trauma, specifically fractures, surgery, cerebral palsy, traumatic brain injury, burns, prolonged immobilization, and certain congenital conditions such as arthrogryposis or congenital radial head dislocation. With respect to the pathoanatomy, there are intrinsic causes, extrinsic causes, and mixed causes of elbow stiffness and contractures. Intrinsic causes include things like joint incongruity, synovitis, loose bodies, intraarticular fractures, malunions, osteochondritis dissecans, and post-traumatic arthritis which can lead to coronoid osteophytes, olecranon tip osteophytes, and radiocapitellar joint space narrowing. Extrinsic causes include formation of eschar following a burn, heterotopic ossification, adhesion slash contracture of the capsule, and ligament contractures specifically scarring of the posterior oblique portion of the medial ulnar collateral ligament. Again, ligament contractures are extrinsic causes, specifically scarring of the posterior oblique portion of the medial ulnar collateral ligament, and this has been a tested point on past exams. With respect to mixed causes, that is, intrinsic plus extrinsic causes, keep in mind that late effects of intrinsic conditions can lead to extrinsic stiffness. Now let's go over some relevant anatomy. Specifically, we'll talk about range of motion, elbow ligaments, and biomechanics, as well as nerves. With respect to range of motion, functional motion again is between 30 degrees to 130 degrees, that is extension to flexion. As we just mentioned, most activities require a 100 degree arc of motion at the elbow to be functional. A 30 degree loss of extension is well tolerated by most patients. Functional motion also involves 50 degrees of pronation and 50 degrees of supination. So again, 30 degrees to 130 degrees of extension to flexion and 50 degrees of pronation as well as 50 degrees of supination is required for functional motion. With respect to elbow ligaments and biomechanics, the primary ligaments of the elbow include the medial ulnar collateral ligament, the radial collateral ligament, and the annular ligament. Again, the primary ligaments of the elbow include the medial ulnar collateral ligament, the radial collateral ligament, and the annular ligament. The medial ulnar collateral ligament has two bundles, the anterior bundle and the posterior bundle. The anterior bundle is the most important stabilizer to both valgus and distraction forces. With respect to the posterior bundle, this is the posterior oblique portion of the medial ulnar collateral ligament. With respect to nerves, the proximity of the ulnar nerve to the elbow joint places this nerve at risk if the joint is contracted. Again, the proximity of the ulnar nerve to the elbow joint places it at risk if the joint is contracted. With respect to the presentation of elbow stiffness and contractures, Patients typically present with pain and decreased motion. With respect to pain, pain in the mid arc of motion may indicate intraarticular pathology. Extrinsic soft tissue contractures are typically painful at the extremes of flexion and extension, where bone impingement and soft tissue stretching may occur. Decreased motion often limits activities of daily living. Physical exam in these patients should include inspection, range of motion assessment, as well as a neurological evaluation. On inspection, you should examine the skin around the elbow to look for scars from previous surgeries and or for inflammation. With respect to range of motion, measure elbow flexion extension as well as pronation supination. With respect to flexion extension, if there is less than 90 to 100 degrees of flexion, the posterior band of the MCL is likely contracted and should be released. Again, if there's less than 90 to 100 degrees of flexion, the posterior band of the MCL is likely contracted and should be released. On neurological assessment, make sure to evaluate the median, radial, and ulnar nerve function. With respect to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include AP, lateral, and oblique views. Serial radiographs should be done if heterotopic ossification is noted. With respect to findings, this is dependent on the pathology causing the stiffness/contractures. A CT scan is indicated if there are loose bodies in the joint, for non-unions, joint incongruity, as well as abnormal bony anatomy. An MRI is rarely indicated. Treatment of elbow stiffness and contractures can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes NSAIDs, physical therapy with active and passive range of motion exercises, as well as static splinting. NSAIDs as well as physical therapy with active and passive range of motion exercises is indicated as the first line of treatment in most cases, as well as contractures of less than 40 degrees. Static splinting is indicated when there is a failed trial of physical therapy with elbow flexion contractures greater than 30 degrees or elbow flexion less than 130 degrees. Operative options include capsular release, plus or minus release of the posterior band of the MCL, osteophyte excision, distraction interpositional arthroplasty, total elbow arthroplasty, or musculocutaneous neurectomy. Capsular release plus or minus release of the posterior band of the MCL is indicated when there's extrinsic capsular contractures with normal joint surface congruency, which has the most predictable beneficial results, and it's also indicated for patients with arthritis. However, this is less predictable once the joint surface is incongruous. With respect to outcomes of this option, Compliance with postoperative rehabilitation is critical, and there is less predictable outcomes when ankylosis is present preoperatively. Contraindications to a capsular release, plus or minus the release of the posterior band of the MCL, is a Charcot elbow joint, neurologic elbow disorder, as well as poor skin, which is a relative contraindication and may need plastic surgery for a rotational flap if this is carried out. With respect to an osteophyte excision, this is indicated when there are intrinsic contractures with arthritis confined to the olecranon fossa, and you can perform this in conjunction with a capsular release of a bony block to terminal range of motion. The bone should typically be removed from the coronoid, coronoid fossa, olecranon, and olecranon fossa. A distraction interpositional arthroplasty is indicated when there's intrinsic contractures with diffuse arthritis in high-demand younger patients. A total elbow arthroplasty is indicated when there are intrinsic contractures with diffuse arthritis in low-demand elderly patients. With respect to outcomes, there is a high failure rate in young active patients, and keep in mind that there is a permanent 5-pound lifting restriction in these patients that undergo total elbow arthroplasty. Finally, a musculocutaneous neurectomy is indicated for neurogenic contractures with a flexion deformity of less than 90 degrees. Now, let's go over some surgical techniques in a bit more detail, specifically capsular release, plus or minus release of the posterior band of the MCL. Approaches can be arthroscopic or open. The arthroscopic approach is technically demanding, and keep in mind that the radial nerve is most at risk with portal placement, followed by the ulnar and median nerves. Entry into the posterior compartment will involve debridement of the olecranon fossa slash osteophytes with a posterior capsular release, and caution should be used using suction medially due to the proximity of the ulnar nerve. Entry into the anterior compartment will involve debridement of the coronoid fossa slash osteophytes with anterior capsulotomy or capsulectomy. An open approach can be done with a lateral column approach, otherwise known as the Mori approach, a medial quote-unquote over-the-top column approach, otherwise known as a Hotchkiss approach, and finally a combined medial and lateral approach. With respect to the lateral column approach or the Mori approach, this can be performed through a lateral or posterior skin incision. And then you will elevate the ECRL and brachioradialis anteriorly and the triceps posteriorly. You will then mobilize the brachialis off the anterior capsule and then debride slash release anteriorly and posteriorly, including the coronoid tip slash fossa, olecranon tip slash fossa, anterior and posterior capsule, as well as the radiocapitellar joint the medial over-the-top column approach or the Hotchkiss approach is best for patients with extrinsic contractures, MCL calcifications, and or baseline ulnar nerve symptoms. You will perform this with a decompression or transposition of the ulnar nerve, then release the posterior band of the MCL to increase flexion, and working anterior to the flexor pronator mass, you will debride slash release anteriorly, including the coronoid tip slash fossa and anterior capsule. Finally, with respect to the combined medial and lateral approach, a single posterior incision allows for medial and lateral column approaches. If there's less than 90 to 100 degrees of flexion, the posterior band of the MCL is likely contracted and should be released with consideration of concomitant ulnar nerve decompression or transposition. With respect to timing of contractual release, consider contractual release four to six months post-injury slash surgery if range of motion has plateaued and appropriate splinting slash therapy has been performed. Heterotopic ossification can be resected at maturity. Determine this based on visualization of well-corticalized margins of new bone with lack of changes on serial radiographs. Laboratory studies are not necessary to determine heterotopic bone maturity. With respect to rehabilitation, surgery is typically performed under a regional block that can be helpful for pain control postoperatively. Continuous passive motion can be done through full range of motion. A compressive dressing can help with swelling. Therapy should be done with active and active-assisted range of motion. And you can use extension splinting as needed. You can also use dynamic or static progressive splinting as needed. With respect to outcomes, improvement in range of motion can be variable and most patients will retain two-thirds of the motion gained at the time of surgical release. Some surgical complications to be aware of include postoperative heterotopic ossification, transient ulnar neuropraxia, ulnar nerve damage, and recurrent contracture. Postoperative heterotopic ossification may be treated prophylactically with low-dose radiation therapy or endomethacin. Keep in mind that low-dose radiation may be contraindicated with acute fractures due to the risk of nonunion. With respect to ulnar nerve damage, ulnar nerve transposition should be considered to reduce the risk of ulnar nerve injury if preoperative flexion is less than 100 degrees. With respect to prognosis of elbow stiffness and contractures, patients are able to perform activities of daily living if elbow range of motion of 30 degrees to 130 degrees is achieved. Again, patients are able to perform activities of daily living if elbow range of motion of 30 degrees, that is extension, to 130 degrees, that is flexion, is achieved. Most activities require a 100 degree arc of motion at the elbow to be functional. A 30 degree loss of extension is well tolerated by most patients. Keep in mind that flexion loss causes more dysfunction than extension loss. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, a 50-year-old male laborer has persistent pain in the right elbow and has been having difficulty with some activities of daily living over the last year. He has not seen any progress after three months of using the extension splint from his ulnar nerve transposition 10 years ago. He currently denies numbness or tingling in the 4th and 5th digits and has a negative Tinel's at the elbow. His elbow range of motion is 45 to 110 degrees of flexion/extension and 130 degrees of total pronosupination. Which of these factors is a relative contraindication to arthroscopic release? And the choices are 1 age over 40 years, 2 male gender, 3 osteophyte formation in the ulno-humeral joint four, prior ulnar nerve transposition, and five, heavy labor occupation. The correct answer to this question is four, prior ulnar nerve transposition. So the patient has developed an elbow contracture in the setting of a previous ulnar nerve transposition. Given the variable location of the ulnar nerve, arthroscopy should be avoided and an open release should be performed. To quickly review, elbow contractures may arise from various different insults, from superficial dermal burns to recurrent hemarthroses. Once the functional range of motion needed for most activities of daily living is lost, that a is 100-degree total arc, or from 30 to 130 degrees, a supervised physical therapy program with or without dynamic splinting is warranted. After these options have been exhausted, surgical release can be considered. An arthroscopic release has several advantages. However, in the setting of a previous elbow surgery, such as in the case of an ulnar nerve transposition, this entails a much higher risk of injury and is a relative contraindication. Other contraindications to arthroscopic release are heterotopic ossification, obesity, severe loss of pronosupination, and muscular contractures as seen in cerebral palsy. Keener and Galatz reviewed treatment options for the contracted elbow. Though technically challenging, many elbow contractures are amenable to arthroscopic release. The biggest contraindication to arthroscopic release is a previous ulnar nerve transposition as portal placement has a much higher risk of iatrogenic nerve injury. Tucker et al. discussed the management of elbow contractures arthroscopically. They prefer to resect the entire anterior capsule until the brachialis muscle is seen and always stay posterior to this structure. They also describe making a fenestration between the coronoid and olecranon fossas in order to allow fluid extravasation while working in the posterior compartment. Moving on to the next question, which of the following statements is true regarding the posterior oblique portion of the medial collateral ligament of the elbow? And the choices are one, can be released to gain flexion in patients with post-traumatic contracture, two, has the highest tensile strength of any elbow ligament, three, is reconstructed in the Tommy John procedure, four, is the primary ligamentous restraint to valgus force during throwing, and five, is responsible for the pivot shift of the elbow. The correct answer to this question is 1. Can be released to gain flexion in patients with post-traumatic contracture. So addressing flexion in a post-traumatic contracture of the elbow requires releasing the posterior oblique ligament, or band, of the medial ulnar collateral complex. To quickly review, the medial ulnar collateral ligament is one of the primary static stabilizers of the elbow and is composed of three parts, anterior, posterior, and transverse. The MCL provides resistance to valgus and distractive stresses. The anterior oblique fibers of the anterior bundle are the most important against valgus stresses. The posterior bundle is involved in elbow contractures and releasing it can yield significant flexion gains without creating valgus instability. Mori et al. performed a pilot study on four specimens and found the valgus stability is equally divided among the medial collateral ligament complex, anterior capsule, and bony articulation in full extension whereas at 90 degrees of flexion, the contribution of the anterior capsule is assumed by the medial collateral ligament, which provides approximately 55% of the stabilizing contribution to valgus stress. Regan et al. was a subsequent study by the same group that found the posterior medial collateral ligament was taught only when the elbow was in a flexed position. Among the collateral ligaments, the anterior was the strongest and stiffest, Of note, using present terminology, these would be referred to as the posterior oblique and anterior oblique portions of the medial ulnar collateral ligament complex. Wada et al. reported a series of open medial releases for post-traumatic elbow contracture and found scarring on the posterior oblique bundle in all cases. Large increases in flexion were achieved by releasing this structure and the capsule without the need for a lateral incision in most cases. And moving on to the final question, Static progressive turnbuckle splinting is most appropriate for which of the following patients? And the choices are one, three months after ORIF of a distal humerus fracture with a flexion arc of 45 degrees to 100 degrees with no further improvement with physical therapy. 2, 4 weeks after non-operative treatment of a displaced radial head fracture with block to supination. 3, 1 week after simple elbow dislocation with flexion arc of 10 degrees to 140 degrees. Four presence of extensive heterotopic ossification after a complex elbow dislocation with associated ankylosis of the joint. And five immediately after elbow arthroscopy for loose body removal and debridement. The correct answer to this question is one three months after ORIF of a distal humerus fracture with a flexion arc of 45 degrees to 100 degrees with no further improvement with physical therapy. So static progressive splinting is useful treatment for certain patients with post-traumatic elbow stiffness. Generalized accepted indications are flexion contractures greater than 30 degrees or flexion less than 130 degrees after a failed trial of physical therapy. Galinas et al. treated 22 patients with an elbow contracture using a static progressive turnbuckle splint for a mean of 4.5 months. 11 patients gained a functional arc of movement, defined as at least 30 degrees to 130 degrees, and only 3 patients showed no improvement at all. Dornberg et al. treated 29 consecutive patients with elbow stiffness after trauma. That is, flexion contracture greater than 30 degrees or flexion less than 130 degrees who had failed therapy. The flexion arc improved from 71 degrees before splinting to 112 degrees after splinting operative treatment of stiffness was avoided in most patients. That's all for this review about elbow stiffness and contractures. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.